Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh my gosh, guess what's happening right now where I am. Uh, is it an atmospheric river? It is absolutely an atmospheric river. You might be able to hear it, <laughs> listeners, and Nora, every once in a while, you might be able to hear it. And like, listen, we always try to record with like optimal sound uh, situation, but unfortunately right now there's like a very, very big storm that I'm right in the middle of. And not only is that like very odd for LA, it's also increasingly not odd for LA. It's like, gosh, it's supposed to be this dry desert weather sort of Mediterranean place. But over the last few years, it's become more and more common to see not just rain and precipitation, but this kind of extreme weather pattern. Um, and so, you know, right now there's a state of emergency in Southern California and uh, potential flooding from San Diego right up uh, to past LA County. So, you know, who knows? So if you hear some of that on the line, that's why. Apologies, I guess. It's not really my fault, so whatever. But, you know, I feel sorrow for those of you who have to listen to it if it's kind of annoying and grating on the ears. But more <laughs> importantly, ah. I know, I know. As we record, uh, the Maritimes and Newfoundland are getting pounded. Uh, up to 150 centimeters is falling in Cape Breton and between 80 and 100 in other parts of the of, of Atlantic Canada. And I know that, you know, there's no snow in Calgary and parts of Alberta right now. Um, there's no snow in Toronto. Quebec City usually has a ton of snow. We have barely barely the amount of snow that would be normal. And I was just out today on um, at the St. Lawrence and it's usually covered in ice right now. Today's the, the annual canoe races, the, uh, where they, they literally run canoes across the ice and then where the ice breaks, they, they paddle. And it was, it seemed like it was more paddling than running today, which is not at all normal for the beginning of February on the St. Lawrence. Yeah, I think that right now, uh, in addition to Southern Ontario being in, under a state of emergency, Cape Breton is under a state of emergency. So all of this to say is that, you know, the climate crisis is, is clearly impacting us uh, um, it, with more extreme weather patterns year after year. And uh, this is going to have, of course, long lasting effects on everything from agriculture to our societies to economics to just the way that humans are able to live and what, who is able to survive these types of situations. And um, it's increasingly awful. Mm hmm. Yeah, but hey, don't worry. There's a lot of people who have gotten super rich off of these conditions. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> you too can be one of those people. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but you know what? Besides no, 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 no. Um, this terribleness, I'm sure we have some folks to thank. Nora, uh, do, you, do you got a list for me? Yeah. Thank you so much to everybody who shared the episode, talked about the episode online, shared it especially on Instagram. I'm so bad at Instagram that I'm appreciative of everybody that, there that helps us on Instagram. <laughs> um, but especially this week, thanks to any everybody who changed their donation or donated for the first time, especially Laura, Lindsay, Mark, Juno, and Anna. Thank you so much. Nora, a lot happened this week. 
again. Oh my god, could the news like fucking relax? I, you know, like I just feel like we have been caught in a constant state of like um, never ending crisis since 2020. And uh, I was hoping that 2024 would be different. It's not. Uh, the news has been uh, pretty terrible. So we've got lots to discuss. I mean, there's all of this news about international students. There's news from MLAs in British Columbia being complete pieces of shit. There's uh, the intensification of the of of warfare with the United States uh, bombing. Uh, Syria and Iraq and Yemen and uh, I, I mean there's what's going on in Alberta it just it feels like there's just so much I don't even know if we can choose one to focus on I think we just got to go with all of it mm, okay well why don't we start with the international student uh, issue first that seems like a place that we can ease into the other issues <laughs> sure Let's start with international students. So if you haven't heard, um, uh, Canada has decided to put a cap on international students uh, coming into the country and studying at uh, post-secondary institutions. Of course, this is all related to the news that I, I don't know how you could have avoided, um, that uh, people have, have really tried to connect um, the amount of international students that are coming into Canada and the problems with the housing market. And so what the uh, the government is saying is that this is a measure to, to try to control that, uh, to pause, to put a moratorium uh, on, uh, to cap international students coming into the country. And in BC in particular, a complete ban on new post-secondary institutions, new colleges and universities from enrolling international students at all. Now, this is an issue where like, I feel like nobody is actually talking about the real problems here. Yeah. Like, first of all, there's obviously the financing piece in, in, in universities and colleges, which people have talked about, but the way that it's been talked about is like, oh my God, if you stop international students from coming in, these universities and colleges can't afford to survive. And so therefore we need the international fees. It's like, that's one way to talk about it wrong. Don't do it that way. So, you know, on one hand, it's like international students should not be paying the differential fees that they're paying. And there needs to be a huge fight to regularize their fees to be in line with uh, Canadian students so that they are not relied on in this way. Obviously, policy need to be put into place to make that happen too. But like the, there has been like a really unbelievable increase in the number of international students studying in Canada. And it is not equal across the kinds of institutions. It's not the same. The increase has not been the same at, you know, uh, a university of Manitoba as it has been at a confederation college, for example. And I think that that's a really important part of this because you know, especially the Ontario colleges who've been more and more and more operating like private career colleges. This is is where you see the impact of absolutely no planning whatsoever, except money, 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 bring them in, money, money, money. Yeah. Like, it is so stunning to me that that not a single college administrator has been fired over this stuff. You know, these people are not the most talented people in the uh, industry, uh, to say the least. And there's no question that this is like, I mean, bad management is not a strong enough way to explain what the problem is here, but it is colossally 
bad management, especially at the college level. Because if we start looking at other issues like how many visas are denied for students from countries in Africa or Pakistan or other countries that the Canadian government deems as being uh, suspicious or enemy-like or whatever. I mean, there's a whole other problem where students are routinely refused visas to come with offers of admission to undergrad, master's, and PhD programs. So that's like a whole other issue. Then the third piece, which is almost completely lost, but is actually a huge part of this too, are the private career colleges, which shouldn't even be allowed to operate at all for anybody, for Canadian students, for international students. And when you organize a system completely in the service of of, of buying and selling education, like, the, you know, we, we fought so hard against these trends so long ago that it's so it's stunning to see that nothing happened you know nothing nothing happened <laughs> ah it's enraging mm-hmm. yeah it's like it's so weird to you know fucking what um almost 20 years on look back and see you know we at that time in the early oddies we were like this is going to become a crisis and here we are <laughs> In 2024, guess what, Nora? We remain good at this. Um, <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, I, I, just for, for those who, who haven't heard the arguments before, who haven't listened to our podcast and heard us argue this before, just don't know us and haven't heard us rant about this before, you may not know this, but in Canada, international students used to pay the same fees as domestic students. And it was in and around, you know, um, past uh, the 19, the late 1980s and through the 90s that neoliberalism's hold on post-secondary education really started to spread across the country. And not only did um, tuition fees start to increase massively so that it was, it was not just... Um, a, a fee that folks could a- afford um, often by just working in the summer uh, to pay uh, their tuition fees. They decided to introduce differential fees and that int- uh, that specifically uh, targeted fees for international students and fees for people in programs that um, are now deemed quote unquote professional fees. But there's there's there was nothing to that. It was just kind of this idea that, well, we'll decide that these programs, you can make more money in them um, in a career when you leave. And so we'll make differential fees. And uh, with those differential fees, charge um, sometimes double, sometimes even triple uh, tuition fees than folks who were in other types of programs deemed not professional were paying. And so as all of these fees were going up, um, uh, colleges and universities weren't uh, getting like... Uh, tons and tons more money into their coffers because at the very same time, um, across the board, governments across Canada uh, started to reduce their own contributions to public education. And so uh, when Nora's saying earlier that uh, the news is not talking about this correctly in saying that this cap uh, will result in less money coming in and, and that's going to be bad for the uh, universities and colleges, the missing piece here is you're letting the provinces off the hook who have decided, they have decided, and not based on any sort of uh, democratic 
decision making with uh, the broader populations of each province um, that they are going to divest from public education. And now this causes all sorts of massive issues, you know, like the 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 massive crises that we're seeing in healthcare can be traced back to how the provinces are are no longer funding an affordable education or an accessible education um, for uh, for healthcare related uh, careers. Um, you can trace back uh, not being able to resolve uh, infrastructure issues across the the country to these same types of decisions that these provinces are making. So it's not just an issue that you can just like something that you can point to because the culture wars are trying to to target. Um, uh, immigration of all kinds and have settled on uh, international students as the one that they're going to target today to say this is the issue with the housing market. This is a problem with long-term planning generally with provinces and a neoliberal approach to post-secondary education that hurts us all. Education is a public good and from education, from that public good flows so many more public goods. And what's happening right now to inter international students and how we're discussing international students, it's such a complicated issue, but suffice it to say that it is highly unjust to everyone the way that this is this is happening right now. And I mean, the, the consequences, have you seen, did you see the story that was in uh, the Queen's student newspaper that Queen's might be going bankrupt soon? I mean, yeah, okay, great. Fuck you, Queen's. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I write. Right. Like, I mean, some of the ways that this this happens, like what what ends up being discussed, like there's so many issues in post-secondary education, including, you know, like what's going on at the executive level, like the ballooning of the VPs and the provostial like class of people and institutions and and what that looks like, uh, what that does uh, to the to the overall amount of funds that are available to be spent. But I could go on and on. Now, Sandy, I'm, I, I think I might be about to blow your mind. Impossible. And that's hard on this issue. It is. Okay, so, you know, part of, of what's happening here, which is not at all being talked about, and this is literally blowing my mind as I'm, like, searching, okay, what is, like, the percentage change of international student enrollment versus domestic student enrollment, blah, blah, blah. And I have found a Statistics Canada report that pretty much demonstrates that higher education in Canada was a bubble, and that bubble has burst in the last seven years. And so data from between 2010 to 2019 shows that year over year, enrollment among domestic students, especially domestic students aged 18 to 24, has plummeted in Canadian higher education institutions. At the same time, international students have increased. Why? Because the institutions are addicted to tuition fees and have to make up the gap of domestic students not enrolling. Did you know that? I did not know that. And you know what? I'm like, I'm kind of curious because I don't know what it looks like at the like at the admissions level, like how they're making those decisions. Is that plummeting in some ways at all related to the fact that domestic students aren't getting in because they're making choices about where these students should come from? Like, or is it just that people aren't applying? It's, so this is aggregate data, so it's hard to say, and it's not necessarily about applications, though obviously that would be part of this. So this is going to be the this is the total enrollment of students within higher education in Canada, and just to give you a, an idea, so enrollment starts dropping in 2010, and it drops by uh, 
looking at this scale, maybe 5,000 students like across Canada. But then you get to 2013, 2014, and that number hits 75,000 fewer students in the system. What? 2015, 2016, it's a little bit less. It's like it's like 74, 73.5 thousand fewer students. Um, and then that number continues to be between minus 50 and minus 74,000 up until 2019. At the same time, international student enrollment is always positive and it's growing. I mean, the highest numbers it grows from 2018 to 2019, hitting not quite 50,000. So not actually fully replacing the, the domestic students who uh, should have been there. And that, those numbers are, are students aged 18 to 24. So there is an influx of students who are older than 24, but the, but the enrollment is still lower. And so I think like for me, that is the proof that this whole push to get people into higher education at all costs, mortgage your future, don't worry, you'll make it back, it's going to be an investment, blah, 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 blah. Uh, people know that it's bullshit, number one. And number two, if it's that demographic 18 to 24-year-olds that are not going on to higher education as quickly as uh, then the numbers catch up a little bit, though, as I say, there's still fewer students, uh, Canadian students in general, then people can't afford it. Like They cannot afford to go to school. And so they are not going to school. And so then the international student presence becomes critical to fund places like Queens, or as we all remember, Laurentian in Sudbury, Ontario, that also had a bankruptcy crisis many years ago. And by the way, university finances and, and budgeting is not actually that complicated. And these people are, um, again, like it's a question of talent and skill. Like I, I was on a board of governors where our university insisted that a third of the total budget was not spent every year and, and carried forward past the, the next year to encourage people to not run their budgets or whatever. Like these are institutions that have lots of money, except they can't manage it well. And they certainly have not been activist in managing their finances, considering how underfunding of the institutions has been uh, ongoing for years now. Oh, totally. And like Queens has a healthy endowment. Um, you know, like there were some oh, things, yeah. there were some things missing in the article that should have been there. Um, so again, like as Nora says, like the, the, this, the story is bigger than it's being discussed. And I think, um, one of my biggest takeaways, uh, for folks who are listening, who, you know, it would literally probably take us a, a series to talk about this, um, this issue with the, with the, uh, the sort of weighted consideration that it, it requires in order to understand it all. But just note that when you are reading stories about this, they're often woefully incomplete. Mm. Oh, if only Canada Land could do it. Oh, Nora. <laughs> I didn't even mention Whoa. this in like the list of things that happened this week. But uh, right. did you did you? <laughs> Did you listen to Canada Land Do you know this what? Week? Why don't you hold that thought? Hold, hold, hold that thought because I just want to say one final thing about this and it goes back to this whole racist framing of the affordability crisis because Christia Freeland, three hours ago from when we're recording, so Sunday night, just tweeted this and I'll try to do it in her voice. Homes are for Canadians to live in and should not be used as a financial asset class by foreigners. We are using all possible tools to make housing more affordable across the country, including by extending the ban on foreign ownership of housing in Canada. Homes are for Canadians to live in. So like right there. <laughs> 
homes are for Canadians to live in. Sorry, Christia, are you going to actually stop the crisis of Canadians profiteering off of people's rents? Like, anyway, I, I, I just that it, it, like it's just so exactly how the international student crisis is being reported as well. They're the they're the reason we have no housing unless it's foreign owners, and then it's they're the reason, and it's never us. It's never Canadians who are the actual reason, which. Which we are, but yeah. So Canada Land. I mean, that was um, that was a bad week for that that show. Oh my goodness! Uh, very very. So I, I just um, yeah. I just uh, I did not see all of this stuff on Twitter before I listened. I just listened to it on my own and was like, is this? So you know what? Like, I don't want to talk about it too much. But listen, if you listen to Canada Land. Um, the, I this week there was just like one half of the of the show that was like un, unbelievably racist in a way that I just like I I don't understand how they thought that it was okay to discuss what they were discussing in that way and the other half of the show was I don't know trying to make the argument that artificial intelligence porn is freedom of speech if it is <laughs> robot like, freedom of speech <laughs> I, I i robot freedom of speech if someone's like y- y- sorry there was no if to it it was just it was just like this stuff shouldn't be illegal which is weird because i anyway regardless it was i don't want to talk too much about canada land but i just what is going on um, with uh, this, this um, uh, what was, you know, a, until recently, a really important source of media criticism in Canada? Like, I'm, I'm really confused. I'm wondering what it's like for the workers right now who are working there. And I'm just wondering what it's going to look like when... Um, the accountability that they talked about uh, taking uh, the the Candleland Union put out a statement at some point last year after uh, Jesse Brown made an, a number of uh, comments that were um, uh, ranging on uh, unfair to, to Zionist uh, um, with remarks with discussions um, about uh, Palestine, Palestinian activists, and people who support Palestine, and um, and journalists who support uh, Palestine, and then uh, you know a lot of uh, silence on uh, the journalists who have been harmed and killed by Israel. It, it, I, I mean, the, the Canada Land Union put out a statement saying that they would uh, be working through uh, some of the uh, the awfulness that has been happening um, uh, over there and be rebuilding public trust and, um, you know, hoping that is going to happen or, you know, uh, it looks like, uh, you know, Canada is in danger of losing uh, one of uh, its what was once an important uh, place for media criticism, criticism. Yeah. 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 I I also don't think there's much more to say about this other than I, I, this past week's episode of shortcuts. I mean, the the last week's episode of Canada land was also really strange. And like, I mean, you know, my heart goes out to Goldsby. Uh, He's in a weird spot. Um, But that was a really weird episode to just talk about Twitter and being nostalgic about Twitter, <laughs> but okay, fine. Um, but shortcuts was 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 not just bad, but it was journalistic malpractice to an in, like an incredible extent. And I didn't listen to the AI porn um, segment, though. Jesse Brown then comparing AI porn to Kent Monkman art was just like uh, didn't make any sense, like racist and fucking weird. 
Um, but this segment on the guy that that shot up or tried to shoot up the Edmonton City Hall, which happened last week, and he ha- he went on a rant about all the things he hates about society, and he names everything from. Uh, people being on their phones too much to immigration to wokeness to I mean li- literally everything and he mentions Gaza obviously because it's a huge part of the news and just because the guy says inshallah like two or three times he's obviously Muslim and he's obviously not okay like he's obviously got some mental health problem because he's talking through a very clear problem and then goes and launches Molotov cocktails and shoots up at the city hall um, this becomes fodder for explaining how Palestinian activists are making these kinds of terror activities possible. And this is a line that B'nai B'rith was pushing, which is frankly nuts. And and so Jesse using his show to launder a completely ridiculous fabrication on what is anti-Semitism, that this guy is first and foremost an anti-Semite. It's like he literally doesn't say anything other than like, you know, what we're doing in, in Gaza is horrible. Like basically that's the extent of what he says. Um, the, the way that the far right reacted to this show online says to me that there is a real danger of this show becoming a completely fucking wackadoodle far right bunch of shit because uh, there's money there. And when you've got someone leading something with no politics really or, or Zionist politics maybe or obviously – and chasing money to be able to sustain itself. Uh, fuck, man. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how Canada Land comes back to this, from this because that was a real low. It was a real shocking, shocking low that causes actual <laughs> real fucking damage. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So back to post-secondary education and uh, the... <laughs> the minister of a post-secondary education in British Columbia. Yeah. So Selena Robinson, did you hear what she said this week? Did you hear what she had to say? I did hear it. She was pretty sure that literally nothing existed in uh, Palestine before Israel. Nothing at all. Oh, just a crappy bunch of land and no people, which then she corrected herself and said, oh, maybe 700,000 people, but... Not only that, she she went on to say that uh, if I'm remembering the video correctly, that um, that this was a place that didn't produce anything, that it wasn't a productive economy. And it's like, wow, it's uh, really, um, you know, uh, here it is. Here is the, the justification that we have been saying exists behind so much of policymakers in the West and how the West has been um, responding and supporting, uh, responding to what's happening in Palestine to uh, Palestinians and uh, pro-Palestinian activists and uh, how the West has been supporting Israel. You know, we are living in, uh, in, in, uh, in settler colonies and uh, settler colonizers support other settler colonizers. And uh, to hear that, that was the justification, uh, remains the justification for Canada's existence, for the United States' existence, this idea of terra nullius, that there was nothing on the land before and that there was nothing productive about the land and that incomes in civilization to, to make things better, to do what the people who were there before, uh, who didn't exist, of course, weren't able uh, to do. And what a disgusting, disgusting comment that has been used to justify genocide over and over again, and of course is being used to justify uh, genocide in this case. 
Mm. But it, and it's also, I mean, like it's it was just so mundane, you know, like she throws it out as if it's just like, yeah, like, you know, there was nothing there and now Israel's there and Israel's amazing. And what, you know, what the fuck, what's everyone upset about? Right. The it, it it's it just reminds me of how much techno fascism is entwined in supporting the the project of Israel. Um, and so, you know, one of the higher profile things that happened in the aftermath of October 7th at Concordia University was that a group of students had uh, set up a kafea sale and there was like more than 100 people lined up to buy a kafea. And a student club on campus called Startup Nation put up uh, a, a thing right beside the cafe sale, which was broadly advertised, and Startup Nation did not advertise their thing. And they held a vigil for the people who are kidnapped, or at the time who were still kidnapped. Um, I mean, people are still kidnapped, but it was, you know, pretty much two or three weeks after October 7th, um, right beside the cafe sale. And after a couple of hours, things, you know, disintegrated and people started fighting with each other. And this group, Startup Nation, is is a Zionist, a explicitly Zionist organization that that understands Israel as being the one and only true startup nation, a nation that is like a startup company that that entered into the middle of nowhere, that just created uh, with all of these PhDs, created incredible technology, leading the world in weapons production and Teva sandals and I don't know, probably some other stuff that I'm not thinking of. And um, and I and and that's obviously what's underpinning such kind of like off the cuff remarks from Selena Robinson. Now she has been consistently shitty though uh, since October seventh, and the things that she has been saying about Gaza. Her husband likes uh, on Twitter like some of the absolute most garbage, fucking racist shit. But you know, fine, she's not her husband. They obviously are together for reason, but whatever. But uh, she also interfered in the case of a professor at Langara College, Natalie Knight, to have her fired over comments that she made about October 7th. And so the Federation of Post-Secondary Educators came out in uh, condemning this. Uh, CAUT came out condemning this. And it was super awesome to see uh, an old comrade, Mike Conlon, on the news saying, what the fuck is this? Um, and so here we have not only just like repugnant comments and what the fuck is wrong with this woman and her ignorance and her and her hatred and blah, 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 are all problems. But then she also does Inter like she she does what should be done unto her <laughs> right now, um, interfering inappropriately as a cabinet minister, as a minister of higher education to get a college professor fired for comments that she personally disagrees with. Comments that were not hate speech, that were not, you know, that she fully has the right to disagree with, but that the professor, Natalie Knight, has the full right to say. In Selena Robinson's comments, she also mentioned that, you know, like if, if there were two nations warring like the Squamish and the Tsleil-Waututh people over land, we would just stay out of it. Would we comment? And like, what a fucking disingenuous comment for so many reasons. Some people have pointed out that she made the comment that, you know, uh, normal people would stay out of it. So so like, yes, like um, weird that your brain thinks that indigenous people are not normal and that other people are normal. But like the other weird thing is that um come on like at canada it, like there is land dispute like there is you are you, what are you talking about like how could you use that as a justification as though canada is not implicated in the land uh that israel is is claiming as its own in as though canada is not implicated 
in the land um, in British Columbia and how that land uh, is is governed either by the Canadian government, um, what land disputes currently exist, as though they could just be without some sort of understanding of, of Canada and its settler colonial, um, continued settler colonial uh, machinations. Yeah, like not to mention the British Columbia government has been super great in their relations with Indigenous people and certainly Wet'suwet'en comes to mind. Uh, also, so too does SERG, the special policing integrated unit that has been harassing and arresting um, land defenders. It's just like it. Anyway, I, I, the big question is, will she resign? Will she be forced to resign? Will David Eby uh, force her to resign? We have this letter from uh, Jagmeet Singh saying like he has expressed um, uh, concerns or whatever, maybe stronger words and concerns to David Eby about this minister. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And uh, I, I do think that it's possible to get her to resign. I think that this is something that people are, are fired up over. And that um, is is kind of a pretty obvious thing for us who feel so powerless about the broader issues to be able to focus on something and say, well, at the very least, maybe we should have fewer racist politicians. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Politicians, not just racist, also uh, fucking... Uh, trying to destroy um, uh, the the rights uh, that transgender and genderqueer children have or eliminate those rights and to really um, start a, I, I don't know, to stoke uh, fucking uh, discrimination against trans people in Alberta. And of course, I'm talking about Danielle Smith. Yes, Danielle Smith, who uh, is an idiot. I mean, let's be very fucking clear. And this attack on trans children and and youth is abhorrent. Now, I think she's playing chicken with the federal government here to have the federal government challenge the constitutionality of a law like this, because this is the most all-encompassing, the, the deepest and most significant attack on trans youth of any province if the if and when the, the legislation passed, although it might not pass. People might be able to fight this and win. Um, but I, I think that this is all about her constitutional wrangling with the federal government, not to say that she's not also ragingly transphobic, but she wants this to be a culture war thing. And she sees her support as being critical, critically buttressed by these culture war touch points, right? Let's remember that Danielle Smith was a failed leader of a provincial party. She was a disaster as the leader of the Wild Rose. People have, you know, people on all sides of the political spectrum have been very skeptical of her capacity to actually be premier. She was on stage with Tucker Carlson and fucking Jordan Peterson and Conrad Black right before she announced this piece of shit legislation. Uh, so that's like cultural wars, um, massive, massive, massive flag there. And so like she needs everything possible to distract from the fact that the AHS is collapsing part, partly but because of her direct actions. Right. This is a woman that tried to order Tylenol from Turkey and the Tylenol um, was too thick to use in um, in IVs for infants and caused problems. And, and they were on the hook to buy something like 90%. Uh, uh, they couldn't use 90% of the Tylenol that they bought uh, under this in ridiculous deal. Like she's so untalented that she has to buttress herself with this stuff because the NDP 
you know, Rachel Notley has announced that she's resigning. I've seen people calling for Nahid Nenshi to be drafted. That would pose a real threat to her because he's competent. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, it is just such an abhorrent and disgusting use of uh, of an already already marginalized population and in parts of the province where there aren't great supports for queer children, it will be devastating. It'll be devastating for queer children in, in larger cities as well, but especially in those rural communities where support networks might be much harder to access or where parents have much more control over their children to see or not see different allies or ways of, of, of reaching out for help. Yeah, I, I agree with you, though, that this is something that I think folks can win um, if there is enough pushback on the ground. And I'm seeing uh, quite a bit of organizing happening. And, uh, and uh, medical associations have uh, this as of... And medical associations pretty much immediately, um, uh, including the Canadian Pediatrics Society and the Alberta Medical Association, have called these these um, these measures, these proposed measures, um, really abhorrent, that they will harm uh, children and they will harm their ability to do their jobs to provide the care um, that their patients need. And so, like, remember when this was all about, like, uh, parental rights or that's what we were told that it was about? Like, what happened to that? Apparently, like, it's not actually about the rights of parents, which was already a, a really um, weird way to term all of this. It's not about the children's rights. It's actually about, apparently, what Danielle Smith wants and supporters of Danielle Smith wants. And they want to be able to make these decisions, um, regardless of whether they are medically sound decisions, regardless of whether they are decisions that the children themselves want, or regardless of whether... Uh, the parents want these decisions, which was apparently what this was all about in the first place. So go figure. What's really happening here is um, uh, another fascistic government trying to um, to, to get support uh, from a base based off of hate uh, and hatred of a particular group. And, um, and that's what's happening here. And that's how it should be discussed. And that's how we should understand it. And uh, because of that, you know, obviously, this has to be um, opposed with everything, everything that we've got. And, um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that this um, will not be able to pass. Um, and, you know, like you said, she's experienced failures before. Let's keep going, Albertans. <laughs> That's right. No, exactly. And, you know, when people come after children for any reason, like it usually does backfire because, you know, I I know there's a video that went viral from a a council meeting or a a session, I don't know, in Medicine Hat where someone stormed out of of the room saying that he knew two people who've taken their lives because of homophobia and transphobia. You know, people will not be able to stand that, but the organizing is going to be intense and it's going to be difficult. So, you, you folks can win it. <laughs> You'll win it. You'll win it. Uh, especially because, um, you know, the boss is an idiot and that's super, super helpful because when they're super smart, uh, it can be a little bit more difficult. I mean, the final thing to mention tonight as we close out this episode is uh, the intensification of uh, U.S. activities in the Middle East and the bombing campaigns in Iraq 
Syria and Yemen. Um, you may have heard that last week three U- U.S. soldiers were killed, uh, and so this th- these latest attacks are the U.S.'s um, the U.S.'s response, and all of it uh, uh, is related to, of course, making sure that Israel can continue to do what Israel is doing. And it's like, at what point um, does this? Stop. There's 30,000, just under 30,000 uh, Palestinians are now uh, confirmed killed uh, by Israel. And there were attacks on uh, on Rafa City this week, which is where, which again, another place that Israel had said was going to be a safe place uh, for for people to 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 take refuge. And it's just like, like what the fuck is going on um, with uh, the way that the the United States is responding? It's pretty horrible, and it just seems like um, like a, a recipe for continued disaster. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the attacks on Rafah are are really dem- demonstrative of Israel's genocidal intent here. Because Rafah is it's the south; it's a, it's a border city. Um, most people who want to leave would be in Rafah at this point, and they are waiting every single day to hear whether or not their names are called. Uh, I have friends, I have a friend who, with family there, direct family, wife and children. And um, and that's what happens is every day, uh, whether you're living in a tent or you're living 13 to a room in, in a friend's house because they're generous enough to let, you know, as many people as possible to live there. People are, are hoping that their number comes up so they can escape from this horrifying situation. And, you know, you can't say that that's anything but at best ethnic cleansing, like at best, right? Kicking people out of the country is ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, my partner made this comment uh, and it kind of was like, oh, I didn't really notice that. But how completely warped m- reporting has become in how we talk about military actions. And when it has come to the Middle East, everything is like presumed to be tit for tat. Like, oh, yes, of course there would be retaliation to American soldiers being killed. Of course there would be a t- retaliation to, um, you know, y- Yemen uh, shooting at or attacking or whatever uh, merchant sh- vessels within the Red Sea. Of course there's responses to these things. And it's like there actually doesn't need to be responses to this stuff unless we are cheerleading, ramping up the war, unless we're cheerleading uh, on a, a massive regional and potentially larger than regional conflict. Um, and, you know, to actually bring it back to Alberta for a, mi- <laughs> a minute, I don't know if you saw this headline in CTV, but this is wild to me. Quote, Trudeau minister says Alberta's trans policy proposal equal to NATO moment for LGBTQS plus community. What? NATO moment. What does that mean? NATO. You know, I refused to discover what that Uh, means. uh And so, dear listener, you will have to Google that to find it out for yourself. Like, I don't know if they mean that, like, Manitoba is going to declare Article 5 on on Alberta. And actually, like, Article 5 is when a member of NATO is invaded by probably Russia, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, of course, what's underpinning the largest war games for NATO going on right now that Canada is participating in, right? We've sent a thousand personnel over to this war games because they're simulating an Article 5 situation. 
yeah, like that kind of language has crept in everywhere. And it's like somehow not completely bonkers that a federal minister was like, this is a NATO moment because the the drums of war are so encompassing and everywhere that that we can't escape war language even. That... Okay. Well, um, as as <laughs> the as the thunder starts starts up again, um, that is truly something, Nora. Truly something. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I just also want to mention too that um, we we didn't talk about this before we started, but it's it's this really important piece of news for people to watch. Like Brandy Morin, who's a reporter for Ricochet and uh, has been covering the campments uh, in Edmonton as the, as the police have been breaking them up. She has been arrested for reporting and um, Ricochet just reported that they've found evidence that she's also being very closely monitored by uh, this shadowy kind of online company that is likely working for the province to, to, to basically stalk her words, her comments and what she's reporting on. So, you know, like the... First of all, this that that has not become a big, big enough story in Canada. There has not been enough journalists talking about Brandy and what she's going through. But that aside, um, as globally violence continues to ramp up and and we start to see even more and more and more of of the inside of some of the stuff. So, you know, there's a Telegram channel that ha- that IDF soldiers have been sharing smut videos of all the horrifying things that they've been doing to Palestinians. This has just broken this past week. There, um, of, like the New York Times, this whole story around the mass rapes on October 7th has completely fallen apart. <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And that means means the state is going to get more and more intense as they are policing what we are allowed to say. And whether it's related to Palestine and Gaza or whether it's related to land defenders and colonization in Canada, including as it relates to encampments and and, um, and the mass homelessness problem that is plaguing our cities because we don't have any interest in giving people homes. It's um, it is going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And the, and the surveillance is going to get more intense. 